Father, just like we need air to breathe and we need water to drink, so, Lord, we need your word to create and to sustain spiritual life. So we pray today, Lord, that your word, which is God-breathed, it is your word that you have authored. We pray that you may take your word and instruct our hearts. We pray that we might see how it connects with what you need to be doing in our heart and life. And we pray, Lord, you, as a result of the things that we study in your word today, that your Holy Spirit will truly have the leadership and that he will be the one who is influencing our life in ways that will bring you glory and be useful for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you ever had the experience recently where you've been reading the Word of God, and after reading it, you just pause for a second and you pray to yourself and say, Lord, my heart just longs for me to experience what you did in the lives of these early believers in the early church. I long to see you do that in my life. Well, that has happened to me again and again as I have read and reread portions of the book of Acts. And as I've looked at these, this phrase, one particular phrase, it just resonates with me. It is a phrase that I keep saying, Lord, I want you to do this for me. I want you to do this for our church. And like you did in those early days, I have Acts 4.31 in mind. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Acts 4.31 as we're going to use that text and then a number of other texts this morning in looking at this amazing statement. It says, And when they, that is the early disciples and believers, had prayed, this is John and Peter who had come back now having been held in prison overnight, and the Lord has given them favor for being released by the religious authorities. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you, prayer meetings that are followed by rumblings and tremblings of earthquakes is rather rare. So I'm not looking for that to be the kind of pattern, and I'm not asking God to be doing that. Uh, when it comes to doing, uh, performing miracles and healings, which sometimes, obviously, we read about also in the book of Acts, I'm not necessarily asking God to do that either, although I do believe God does heal, but I'm not looking for that to be the ongoing uh, powerful working that comes through me into someone else's life as it did like the apostles. But what I am looking for is something that is not necessarily unique to the early church apostles. I'm looking for something that is normative, that is, that which all Christians should be experiencing and knowing. And that is the phrase, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This phrase is frequently found in the book of Acts, which we'll look at more this morning. And it's commonly used as a description of what Christians had happened to them on a regular basis. And so in our study this morning in the book of Acts, I'm going to, in a sense, push the pause button. Rather than move forward very quickly, as we have been with a quite a pace to cover the ground of what we're looking at, the, the different events that have occurred in the early church, I'm going to take a, a moment and freeze frame, which will give us opportunity to take and think through and ponder what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? 
And in order to do that, I'm going to take, having paused and freeze-framed it here in Acts, I'm going to rewind and go back into the Gospel of John just for a few moments and laying the groundwork to try to understand Jesus' comments to his disciples, laying the groundwork, helping them understand what is going to be the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What does that involve? Then I'm going to look briefly at the book of Acts in a generalized way and understand this pattern of the filling of the Spirit within the early Christians there in uh, the church. And then I want to examine Paul's instruction to believers, his mandate, that every believer is to be filled with the Spirit. And finally, I hope, Lord willing, I want to land this plane and we're going to talk about the practical ways in which we can begin to situate and live in such a way that the ongoing influence of the Holy Spirit is indeed obvious and evident in our lives as followers of Christ. So the first point I want us to look at and consider is that the early church had its method of operation, its modus operandi. I left that out because some of as Latin, I didn't take Latin, but that is a, a very familiar phrase. It's the way in which we operate as early Christians. They were living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But before we get into the early church, I want us to look at what Jesus said, what would be like for his followers in the early church, because he prepared them for these changes that were going to take place in light of his work of redemption on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, and then the coming of the Spirit. There were some unique blessings. There are some changes that were going to come that would be implemented once Jesus departed and the Holy Spirit came. Now, the instruction that he gave to his disciples, obviously a lot of it was misunderstood at the time. They didn't fully grasp it. It wasn't fully comprehended by them. But as we look at it now, we have the benefit of looking back with a greater understanding because we're now on the other side of the cross. And so I want you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 7, Gospel of John chapter 7, and I want us to look at some of the blessings and some of the changes that were implemented that we can enjoy that are part of what we call the new covenant. That is the new way in which God deals with his people in light of Jesus's earthly redemptive ministry. And now the Spirit's application of that ministry to our hearts. John chapter 7, verses 37, 39. Now on the last day, the great day of actually the Feast of Tabernacles is what he's talking about there. You can look back at verse 2 of chapter 7, which it makes it very clear. He's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and he cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now again, if we were there on that occasion, we would have witnessed what again, was a common sight on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the priests would be carrying with him a very elaborate gold pitcher, and he would make his way with a large entourage down to the pool of Siloam, 
And there he would fill that pitcher with water and then they, they would make their way back near the temple complex and near the altar and he would pour out this water as an offering to God. And Jesus sees that and sees this ceremony, a ceremony that was commemorating God's miraculous provision of water for the children of Israel who were desperate a number of times, who were on the verge of dying of thirst. And so Jesus applies this visual portrayal of physical relief. He's reminding them of all the times that they were wandering in the wilderness, how God provided for them physical relief. He is now going to use this as an illustration of the way that he would bring spiritual relief and satisfaction through the provisions of the new covenant, that is, through his finished work on Calvary and the empty tomb. Now, notice the first image that Jesus alludes to is really a parched traveler, someone who is walking along, someone who is facing his own need for water, and he's facing dehydration. Uh, yesterday, we heard a rather dramatic story by our brother Walter Roeder, who talked about one time he took a hike on a very hot and humid day here on the island, and in the midst of several hours of walking and hiking and realized that they've consumed all their water and they weren't able to figure out where they were on this trail out east. And next thing you know, they are desperately, desperately looking for water. Well, if you know anything about what it means to be facing dehydration and desperate for water, Jesus is speaking about that kind of situation. But then he also talks about another image, the image of a dry, thirsty land. There has been a drought. There's been a lack of rain for a long period of time. And the vegetation is all shriveled up. And in this situation, the first image, in a sense, portrays this, this famished and uh, not famished, this person who is thirsting for water as a traveler. That represents the person who's cut off from Christ. They're longing for the deep significance of knowing God and being known by God and to be alive in Christ. The other image is the image, the image of the dried up land is a secular society without God. And both of these things, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to minister in ways just like that water is a blessing to those people physically, so spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit brings blessing to those who desperately need God and His help. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost to, in order to do what? To bring spiritually thirsty people into a satisfying communion with Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God is the only one who can bring about spiritual refreshment for a land of people, a spiritually parched society. Now the question comes in looking at John 7 is, how can we experience this kind of spiritual refreshment? What does Jesus say? What is it that makes the difference in bringing this kind of spiritual refreshment to our souls, individually and as a people? Notice there are several admonitions in verses 37 and 38. These admonitions are present tense. That is, they're to be something you do want, not just once, but over and over. So we would say, one of them is, keep coming to me. Another one is, keep drinking. 
Another one is keep believing in me. These are all closely related and in a sense parallel. We're to come to Christ as people who are desperately thirsty, desperately in need of help, knowing the full weight of our sin, knowing the full weight of our guilt and shame before God. We come longing for God to give us what we need through Christ. We come in repentance and faith. But then, having done so at the beginning of the Christian life, we are there to keep on coming to Christ. We keep on drinking of Christ. Why? Because we continue to thirst. Our hearts begin to wander away and we have idols that oftentimes gain our allegiance. So he's promising us not only the refreshment that comes through relationship with Christ, but notice also the promise of rivers of living water will flow. And that flowing is to flow out of our lives. So I've given you two quotations here, which I've taken from a very helpful book, a classic really in this topic, Baptism in Fullness by John Stott, which I would recommend to your reading as he untangles these things much more extensively than I have opportunity to do this morning. But William Temple said this, No one can possess, or rather be indwelt by, the Spirit of God and keep that Spirit to himself. Where the Spirit is, he flows forth. If there is no flowing forth, he is not there. And so John Stott adds these words. He says, we must be aware of any claim to the fullness of the Holy Spirit that does not lead to evangelistic concern and outreach. What's he saying? He's saying as we believe on Christ, as we treasure Christ, as we find our souls satisfied in Christ, there will be an overflowing out of our hearts of joy that we have in Jesus Christ, no matter what kind of crazy, complicated, or ridiculous circumstances we find ourselves in. As we come to treasure Christ, as we believe upon Him and find our souls satisfied in Him, there will come out of our hearts a love for Christ, a love for those who are followers of Christ, and a love for people who desperately need Christ, and a compassionate love for those who are lost. That when we treasure Christ, when our souls are satisfied Him and we come to Him and believe upon Him, we should see ourselves as people whose hearts are going to be engaged in being on mission, people who are now motivated to serve and follow Christ and to take Christ wherever they go in whatever situation God assigns to them. So as we think through the experience of the early believers in Acts, I want us to think through now what he's saying in seeing this played out among the early believers. And so I want you to look and find your insert in your bulletin there with the sermon notes on one side and look at the back side. We're going to see a pattern here. Because essentially the early believers, what happened for them was they went through a pattern in which they went through spiritual thirsting and spiritual drinking. They had a need. They had a concern. They do what? They come to Christ in faith. The Spirit of God then empowers them and helps them to act, to speak, or to, to respond in love to those around them. Some people are more difficult to respond to than others. 
They kept running into people who were really unfair to them, who were unjust in their treatment of them. They really did nothing wrong, and yet they were still being arrested. They were still being threatened. They were still being told what to do or what they couldn't do. If you'll notice in this chart I put together that just summarized the occurrences of the phrase, they were filled or they were full of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Notice that the phrase filled with the Spirit appears in six passages there. As you'll notice the description column there. And each of those occurrences, you'll notice that the result in the right-hand column was that the early believers... These early Christians proclaimed the gospel or they spoke in such a way in which they spoke courageously and truthfully in situations that demanded people to speak that way. It's a very interesting correlation between being filled with the Spirit and what they began to say. Now you can't argue with that. That's right there in the text. And as I've pondered that, I've begun to think to myself, okay, what's the connection between being filled with the Spirit, let's take 431, Acts 431, began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And it dawned on me, of course, that the words that we say are what? The overflow of what's in our hearts. You say, where'd you get that? Well, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So I'm suggesting to you that when the Holy Spirit is filling a person who is a follower of Christ, then that person's heart becomes full of Christ. They can't get over the fact of how wonderful Christ is in whatever situation they find themselves in. That the circumstances which may be difficult, may be challenging, may be threatening to them, and many of these situations were, In that experience, they have a thirst. They have a longing. They need Christ. They need His help. And so they turn to Him in faith, and they find Him to be so wonderful, so gracious, so joy-producing in their hearts and minds that they cannot be silent. Holy Spirit produces the flow of living waters through them, which begins to now impact the people who are around them in a powerful way. And so here's one of the key understandings I have concluded, and also in reading this helpful book with John Stott as he's unpacked these passages, to be filled with the Spirit is to be dominated or controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit helps to focus our thoughts and our minds on Christ, on the gospel. We become, again, very much aware of the basic truths of what God has done for us in the gospel. And in reviewing these things and becoming more precious to us and applying them to our hearts, we're reminded of Christ and his love for us, his patient love for us, his forgiving love for us. We become aware because of the Holy Spirit who always is pointing the spotlight at Christ. He's reminding us of the fact that Christ is present with us in whatever situation we're in. Whether you're in a very troubled marriage, 
whether you're in a situation with unruly children at your home, if you're in a situation where you have a boss who is impossible and very difficult to deal with, or a coworker who drives you crazy because he's always talking about things that are improper and inappropriate and often has his mind in the gutter. Here's a situation where he says, the, the Holy Spirit is focusing my heart and my mind on Christ, being aware and reminded that Christ He's given us assurance that he's in control of every situation of life. He is king over all. So that's what I drew out of those six passages in Acts in which we find the phrase filled with the Spirit. But then there was another interesting phrase called and referred to people called full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. Those are at the bottom of their chart there. It appears three times, and each time is a character reference for people. People who are modeling Christ-likeness. So we have Stephen in chapter 6. We have Barnabas in chapter 11. And these are people whose hearts clearly are dominated by the gospel. The gospel is something that they are clearly very much embracing to such an extent that it's overflowing now out of their life and how they conduct themselves with a sense of wonder and deep trust in Christ. They are not full of themselves. They are full of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is pointing them to Christ on a regular basis. And so they're exemplifying what I would suggest to you is probably very likely the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How would you like to have someone recommend you with your reference form? They'd be a reference for you, and the way they would speak of you is say, well, this person is, has, is characterized by the fullness of the Spirit. That is, they are a person who exemplifies Christ-like character in all kinds of situations. What a higher compliment can give, be given to anybody. And that's why these men were so exemplary in the fact that they were, again, filled with the Spirit. And the, and, the, and the ongoing effect of that is that they had victory over sin. They had a holiness to their life that was exemplary. They had a character that had been shaped by the gospel over a long period of time. You say, how is it that I can move in that direction in my life? That's what I long for. That's what my heart was yearning from God to say, Lord, I want to be more and more like this. Well, that brings us to our second point. And that's where we're going to look at Ephesians 5 now, because there in Ephesians 5, we find that every Christian has a mandate, a mandate that we are to be continually under the influence of the Holy Spirit. See, how is it that these people, Barnabas and Stephen, who, by the way, what does Stephen say in the most difficult of all circumstances of life? Stephen is being pummeled by rocks. They're stoning him to death. And what does he say? Is he, does he respond out of anger? Does he badmouth these people? You idiots! You people don't get it! You know, does he, is he just create all sorts of vengeance out of his heart coming at them? No, if you look at the end of, and we'll get to this in just a little while, but if you look at what Stephen says, 
At the end of chapter 6, he says, Lord, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He imitates Christ in the last moment of his life. It's amazing. What does that say about what's going on in his heart? He sees them through the lens of the gospel. Anyway, I've got ahead. I'm sort of backed up here. I'm going to move here now to Ephesians 5. And uh, if you found that in front of you, Ephesians 5, verse 18, following. This was written against the backdrop that was rather commonly held idea among many people in Roman culture, a culture that celebrated a diversity of worship and gods and all sorts of um, polytheistic practices. But among some of the Roman people there in the culture, they thought that the way to commune with the gods was to get plastered, to get drunk, and to celebrate with wine and to celebrate in such a way as to drink so much wine that they now begin to be under the influence of that particular god. Bacchus was one of them. And so they thought that intoxication was the pathway to spiritual inspiration. And so they were a party culture. <laughs> I mean, they, they thought this is really the best way to celebrate the gods was to involve themselves in this kind of behavior. So Paul, in realizing that that's a common way of thinking, begins to insist and say, listen here, getting drunk and being under the control of alcohol does not lead you to become a person who is more spiritually benefited. He says, actually, it leads you to what? Debauchery is the word, unrestrained, reckless behavior. So we all know that when certain levels of alcohol get into a bloodstream of anybody, that substance begins to permeate every part of that person so that the person who is under the control and under the influence of alcohol will what? They walk differently. They speak differently. They drive differently and respond differently and they also react differently as well and so what Paul is saying is that more often in today's world people are not looking to somehow worship the gods they their god is the god of enjoyment and pleasure and the god of escape that says I'm getting out of the misery of my everyday life I just want to deal better and cope better with the pressures at work, with the frustrations at home, with the misery of life in this broken world. And so people in today's world will say, listen, in order to do that, I'm going to drink to excess. I'm going to use chemicals. And even in some places in our, in our nation where the, they've actually passed laws that say now you can smoke marijuana and get stoned in the middle of the day anytime you want, you can now use these chemicals, introducing them into your body, to escape negative thoughts, negative feelings, and unpleasant realities. And sadly enough, many in our young adult culture believe that the whole thing they live for is to get to that escape with their friends in some sort of drunken uh, uh, escapade that they sort of think is the ultimate, uh, ultimate, that is the best of all worlds, is to get drunk out of your mind. It's a serious problem. 
because they're trying to escape and to enter into some sort of other reality of life with your friends when everybody's plastered. Well, you notice that Paul clearly says, listen, God is not calling us to live under the control of alcohol or narcotics, even if they're legal, including marijuana. He says, we're not to surrender to the domination of King Alcohol, or if you will, Her Majesty Marijuana. That's not what we're called to do. That's not really the way to find ourselves enjoying the God who created us. He says, not the will of God for his people. He does not want his children to live out out of control lives like that. That's not the point. What does he say? Instead, look what the text says, Ephesians 5.18. God calls us to keep on being filled with the Spirit. You say, well, my translation doesn't say that. Well, I'm giving you the literal best translation because that's really what it says. Keep on, it's present tense, being filled with the Spirit of God. Notice it's not optional. So that if I'm not keeping on being filled with the Spirit and I'm a follower of Jesus, I am not walking in obedience. My heart is in the wrong direction. This is something I really need to th grapple with. This is something that God intends for me to be pursuing in my life, to be, keep on being filled with the Spirit. So that's why I felt like it was important to push the pause button and say, let's find out exactly what are we talking about here. Every believer is meant to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's not limited just to a select few, you know, the elders, the deacons, the pastor, the person who has the official title in the blank, you're attending a conference, what's your role, what's your... No, it's everybody, every Christian. The command is not to be baptized in the Spirit. Again, I don't have time to fully unpack all this, but... Being baptized in the Spirit is never commanded in the New Testament. Why? Because when you come to Christ, the first initial step of coming to faith in Christ and repenting and entering into a relationship with Christ by faith, that is when you are baptized into Christ Jesus. You are joined to Him. You are united to Him. And hopefully soon thereafter, you would be, at some point, uh, walk through water baptism as a way of signifying that this has happened in your life. It is something that God does to us when we are saved. And so there's no need to keep on being baptized. We are to keep on being filled with the Spirit of God over and over again, day after day. Keep on being filled. We are to be under the influence of the Word of God, following the Spirit's lead rather than being under the influence of some depressant chemical or some illegal narcotic or legal narcotic. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live according to our new identity, to our new nature. Because Paul seems to contrast how other people were pursuing their life being under the control of alcohol and talked about the fact that, no, that's no longer how you were supposed to live. That's how you used to live when that was your identity. That used to be the way in which you naturally lived your life. He says, now you live in such a way keeping, keeping in step with your new nature. Now that leads me to my next observation about this command, and that is in verse 18, the verb is passive. Keep on being filled with spirit. Now I don't want to get into an English lesson here, but watch this. I'm going to give you two sentences. One is active sentence, one has a passive verb in it. Here's the active verb. 
I love you. Talk to my wife. I love you. Okay, so love you in the church. I love you. That's active. Who's the person doing the acting? I am. But this is a passive verb. You are loved by me. What does that say? The subject. You are loved by me. The subject is sitting back passively while the action is done by somebody else. You see that? I don't know if you'll catch that. But anyway, what I'm suggesting is that Paul has in mind here that when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, he's saying that part of being filled with the Spirit includes us being willing to yield to the Spirit's control. There's a submission on our part. We surrender to Him. We follow His lead. We follow His prompting. We follow His bidding. And how will He lead us? He will always lead us in the direction of holy living and loving Jesus with all our heart. Too many of us want to hold on to our sin on the one hand, and we want to hold on to the thought we're going to become more like Jesus and be sanctified in the other hand. But continually being filled with the Spirit means that frequently and regularly we are reminding ourselves of the blessings of the gospel. That is, we have a new identity in Christ. We are the children of God by faith. We have new privileges in Christ. We can come to Him unashamed, boldly, with no sense of hesitation at all to the throne of grace, finding help in time of need. We have a new status. And I'm convinced the more that we treasure these realities and the wonders of the gospel, the less the strong desires of the idols of our hearts will pull us in another direction. The more we respond to Christ in faith, the more we reflect upon the truth of the promises of God in the scriptures, the more likely we will be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I think there's a quote further now in your notes there on, under point number two, written by the deceased uh, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, James Boyce. He says this, To be filled with the Spirit refers to being under the Holy Spirit's control and leading. Sorry, let me... Let me being, being, under the, being filled with the Spirit refers to being so under the Holy Spirit's control and leading that our thought and life are actively taken up with Jesus Christ, to whom it is the Spirit's chief responsibility to bear witness. You see what he's saying? He's not saying some sort of fantabulous babbling sound that comes out of your mouth and you have all sorts of indiscernible vocalizations. He's not talking about people who are being slain in the Spirit, falling backwards as being filled with the Spirit. No, he's talking about what? Having our thoughts and our life actively taken up with Jesus Christ. Okay, I've sort of laid a groundwork. Let's talk about how do we get to that point where that is the reality in our hearts and lives. And that's where it brings to my third point. Each believer's mode of living our personal mode of living. How do we take steps to get in step with and be under the influence of the Holy Spirit? I've tried to think of an analogy that will help us here, and I'm going to use this one. It's probably a poor analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway because 
I'm not perfect and I just do the best I can. So anyway, it's a, it's a, a thought of sailing. Now, I'm not a sailor. I know a sailor. Uh, Captain Tedesco is quite good. Um, and I've been on a big sailboat before. I've been on little sailboats before. And all I know is this. If you don't orient the boat the correct way in relationship to the wind, you're not going anywhere, assuming you don't have a motor. If it's a true sailboat with no motor, you're not going anywhere unless you do what? Situate the boat in such a way that it is in relationship to the wind in such a way that it begins to create that drag, right? It blows in such a way that it causes that sail to propel the boat forward. And so just like the sailman, a sailor wants to tack a certain way and catch the wind the proper way, so I would suggest you and I, are, we have ways in which we can orient our life based on the gospel, based on where we stand with Christ, and I think some of these are practical ways we can do that. Let's start with, first of all, one of the first practical applications of being filled with the Spirit, and that is to be led along by the influence of the Holy Spirit, is to have the Word of God, something you're treasuring, something that you're reading, something that you're thinking about. Have it so that it becomes a part of you. It's going on inside your mind in different situations in life. You're thinking scriptural thoughts. You're aware of and you are consciously pondering what's God's will for you. When we say that you've lived in a home and you're at home, oh, it just feels so good to be at home. You've been out on the road, let's say, a long while. You've been on a trip. You go see family. You go stay in a hotel somewhere. Everything's laid out differently. You can't seem to find anything, you know, right? You say, where, where do we keep this? And you're looking all in the cabinets, you know, somebody's house you're staying in. You're looking for things. When you go home, what is it? You know where things are. You know your way around. You're familiar with things. It's not like it's a strange place. Having the scriptures, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, Christ dwell in you richly. That is, let it be at home in your heart. Therefore, if that is true, you'll find you'll have a renewed mind. You'll have thoughts that are saturated with the truth of Christ. And that is absolutely essential if you're going to keep in step with the Spirit. Because guess what? The Spirit is the one who wrote these things. The Spirit revealed to us the will of God. The more we're in tune with what the Spirit has said and revealed in Scripture, the more we will therefore understand what direction the Spirit is going in. How do you do that? Just keep it up. You might skip a day. No problem. Next day, just say, Lord, I want to be in your word. Help me think through this passage of Scripture. Help me remember it throughout the day. Read the Word, meditate on the Word, memorize the Word. I've tried to say, feed your soul as often as you feed your belly. How's that for a good goal? Okay, all right, I'll back up and just say, feed your soul before you feed your belly. You know, it doesn't work for morning people. People are, don't, are not morning people, okay? Do whatever you can to, in, to expose yourself to the Word of God on a regular basis. Secondly, and this is very important, you can read the Word all you want, but you have to respond to the Word appropriately. And I'm convinced that one of the things that we need to do is we need to repent of anything that grieves the Spirit of God. Anything. Repent. That is, in your reading of the Word, you're going to find the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you. He's going to say, oh, oh, here's an area of your life. You need to deal with this. 
is an area which you are resisting the Spirit's control. And if we cling to idols, and an idol is anything or anyone that is more important to you and more significant to you than Christ is. You treasure this more than you treasure Christ. That's an idol. And if you are hanging on to some idol in your heart and life, guess what? You're going to quench the Spirit's leading. It's as if you take an analogy of a fire. You're trying to get a good fire going, right? A campfire. And you've got uh, wood on there and you've got some good kindling on there and you've got some good bigger uh, piece of wood on there. You take a bunch of wet leaves and just keep dumping them on that fire. What are you going to do? You're going to quench that fire. You're going to eliminate it from being effective and, and, and burning the way it was designed to, the way you're hoping to. So I would say this. We need to get alone sometime this week and you need to humbly ask the Lord to reveal to you any area that you need to relinquish and let go of. Is there any hidden sin that's in your heart? Do you need to speak to someone and seek them out and confess some sin that you know full well that you have done against that person and the Spirit of God has convicted you about it and you need to go to them and humbly ask that they forgive you. Admit that you did it and say, listen, I deeply regret it. I'm going to ask you, will you forgive me? You ask that question. Don't say, hey, I'm sorry. I had a bad day. Don't say that. Say, I did it and I regret it. I know it was wrong. Will you forgive me? Give him an opportunity to give you that gift. Is there anything you've stolen and taken that's not yours? You need to make restitution. Make it right. Do you need to put in place something on your phone or something on your computer because you find yourself in a regular pattern of exposing yourself to pornography? You talk about quenching the Spirit, that'll do it on a regular basis. And so you need to do something, whatever you can, to put on your phone some accountability system, an accountability system on your computer, not one that you're going to try to figure out ways you can get around it, but it's designed so that it sends a signal to the other guy that you're your accountability partner, telling him where you've been on the web, where you're going, what kind of websites you're going to. That'll help you in many ways. It'll help you if that's an area you're struggling in. Is your heart full of complaining? Do you find yourself grumbling against God? Focusing on so many things you feel like are unfair or wrong or everything seems to be sour. Confess your sin to God. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Let it go. That's so important. And I'm convinced that's where many of us find ourselves not being filled with the Spirit. We just want to live comfortable lives, do our own thing. And yes, I'll offer you my praise every so often, Christ. No, it doesn't work that way. Get in step with the Spirit by acknowledging we need to turn from things. And then thirdly, and that is turn toward Christ. You're not going to know what you need to repent of if you're not in the Word, right? So we start with the Word. Then you repent and turn away from things that you know are wrong, grieve the Spirit. And thirdly, what do you do? Turn to Christ. Open your heart to Christ in a wholehearted way. Say, Lord, I, Jesus, I trust you fully. I treasure you, Lord Jesus. Take time to meditate on the glories of Christ. Let your heart resonate with the gospel enough that just like a, a piano has certain strings in that piano that resonate when you hit a tuning fork because it's on the same wavelength, Read the glories of the gospel until your heart says, oh, that it resonates with my heart. That is such a wonderful, wonderful provision and blessing from God to me.
to know I'm loved, to know that I am forgiven, to know that I am secure in Christ, to know that I am complete in Christ. I don't have to perform and become something I'm not. Review again and again the promises that Jesus has given to you in the gospel. Review who you are in Christ. Ponder what you used to deserve, what you at one time deserved from God, and then consider your new identity. You are a new creation. You are a child of God. You are holy and beloved by God. That's what the gospel says. So I find it helpful to sing a hymn or sing some significant spiritually enriching song and keep singing it until you begin to understand what God has done for you in that gospel and sing it so often that you now begin to say prayerfully, Lord, I am singing because I am making melody in my heart to you. I don't care about how well I sing it musically speaking, but my heart is so lifted up in wonder and amazement at the graciousness and goodness of God. Perhaps some of us would be helpful to to take a practical step and write down 10 different blessings that you're thanking God for that day. Some of us get very negative. We get very focused on critical things. We're very discouraged about this, that, whatever, you've forgotten to thank God. Do you realize that one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is to be thankful? Begin to think what God has given you. He gives you gifts all the time. We just don't have eyes to see them. And I would suggest that you surrender yourself to anything God would ask you to do. Be available. Be willing. Be humble. Remind yourself what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. (laughs) Lord means master. And when we confess him as our master, then it says we are assuming a role of a bondservant. A bondservant says, here, I'm here to serve you. I'm yours. Tell me what you want me to do. And as you do so, yield your will to God's leading. And in doing that yielding, you're going to find yourself saying, Lord, That means I need to yield myself and my desire to have my way is going to be less important when I'm dealing with other people around me. If we're yielded to God, we're going to find ourselves able to yield ourselves to other people around you. It's amazing how it works that way. Instead of insisting on our rights, we're going to learn to submit ourselves to one another in keeping with the gospel. Again, I have other practical things I could say here. I want to bring this to a close here. The disciples in Acts 4 realized that they needed help because they realized we all struggle to do these things on our own. And so they would pray with other Christians. Do you pray with other people in your home ever? Not just the blessing over the food. Do you ever pray with the people you live with in your home? You ever pray with other Christians as part of our family? We have a prayer time Sunday mornings at 9.30. We all fit around a table, but it's a very significant time in which we are praying for other people, not just for our own needs and concerns and pray for the needs of our church. Anyway, the point is in Acts 4, the early Christians did what? They gathered together for prayer. So I would encourage you, pray with somebody on a regular basis that will help you in drawing close to God and the Holy Spirit then becoming the one who's going to lead you as you yield yourself to him in prayer. And isn't it interesting that as we yield our hearts to God, as we find ourselves moving toward the end of chapter 4 of Acts, you're going to find that as you yield yourself to God, you're going to find that God might say to you, you know, you need to open up your wallet a little bit. 
you need to be a little more or less greedy and stingy with what you got and realize there's people around you that you can might be able to bless and help in a practical, very practical way. Our concern for other people will increase as our selfishness decreases. It's amazing how that works. The more humble view we have of ourselves and the more we're enriched with the gospel that reminds us of how humble we ought to see ourselves, the more the Spirit of God will lead us to regard other people as being more important than ourselves, which is really what? Walking on the path that Jesus walked, having the same attitude as Jesus had, and learning how I deal with other people. May God fill us with His Spirit. Let's pray. Before I lead in prayer, I just want to ask again that you would be open to the Holy Spirit impressing upon you today. Is there some practical area that you need to commit yourself to doing? Is there an area where you need to acknowledge that there's something in your life you need to let go of? There's something you need to repent of and turn away from? And you've been putting that off. And you know full well the Holy Spirit's been trying to get you to take that step and you've been unwilling. Are you willing to do that? One of the problems that we face is procrastination, putting things off. Well, I'll do it someday. No, the Lord says do it now. Do it today. And then in turning away from sin, turning toward Christ. When's the last time you spent time enough singing some song or reflecting on some aspect of the gospel that your heart was just overwhelmed with wonder, love, and praise? Purpose in your heart to do that. And then, and then find the Holy Spirit to be leading you and living under His influence. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might draw us into this wonderful reality that we would not be a people who confess in believing in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and yet we do have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. We don't really understand what it is to be led by Him or to be filled with the Spirit. We pray, Father, that we might truly keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. Help us, Lord, to follow the Spirit's lead to make the gospel that which we cling, claim and cling to and make Jesus Christ our greatest treasure, we pray. And in so doing, may we become more like him and more willing to serve him in whatever he calls us to do in a way that brings the greatest honor and glory to his great name. We pray in his name. Amen.